attendings aren't giving conferences and talks about how you find a job, that they're just not. This is Shafali. And you're listening to Pete Dammit. Today we're going to be diving back into our favorite topic, which is the hidden curriculum. Yes, we love exploring things that you don't learn about elsewhere. And so today we're going to talk about career development, really from being a resident to being a fellow to early attending positions and how you think about progressing your career in academic medicine. Mm-hmm. I feel like this can be particularly overwhelming for trainees because I feel like the natural instinct is to just want to get through training while you're in it. It can be hard to think about the next steps, but it's so important to think about those steps. So to help us sort of navigate this, we have a very exciting guest today. Yes. Today we have Dr. Greg Urasek on the podcast. He's a CICU attending, and we really, even though we both worked in the same hospital as him for three years, we didn't get to meet him because he's he works in the CI. Exactly, which is maybe the most intimidating place in the hospital. <laughs> right? Uh, so Dr. Urasek is a graduate of Columbia University. That's where he went to med school. He completed his pediatric residency at Boston Children's. He also completed a pediatric cardiology fellowship at Boston Children's and then went over to Mass General Hospital for his PICU fellowship before coming to Children's. Yes. While he was at Mass General, Dr. Urasek was Teacher of the Year during his PICU fellowship. And now he's a CICU attending, but also the Director of Critical Care Simulation and so has that elusive career of being an intensivist, being an educator, and is really willing to talk today. So we we really appreciate it. We're so excited. Let's get started. Dr. Yersik, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. We're so excited to find somebody from such an aspirational division of medicine and pediatric medicine to talk to us about career development. I think career development is kind of a nebulous topic for many pediatric trainees in particular. So it's great. Yeah, especially from the CICU side, because as a resident, you have to you have to be sending a kid from the HKU to the CI really to get in yeah. there, right? Yeah, so, you never see it. <laughs> yeah, but so before we start with really asking about your training and background, um, how would you define your current role at Children's? So uh, right now I'm continuing to work as a cardiac ICU attending here for the last uh, six and a half years. And the two sort of related titles that I have is I'm the director of education for the CICU and then the director of critical care simulation for the hospital. So two huge roles, I would say, for sure. Um, Back to career selection, when did you know that you were interested in CICU and, and headed down that path? So I was always interested in pediatric cardiology, even as a resident when I looked at Pediatric Cardiology Fellowship, believe it or not, you had to apply in July of your second year, like 13 months into your residency. That's changed now. So if you had an interest in pediatric cardiology, you had to really have an interest in it. And I was lucky enough to do a couple of months early on in intern year, which I really liked. And I had some great attendings that I was on service with, you know, was able to work with some terrific patients, get a a feel for the flow of work and the interest of the science that was present and applied for for pediatric cardiology. That part was pretty smooth. Getting interested in cardiac critical care was more difficult. And one of the obstacles was that at the hospital I was training in, we had essentially a closed door policy in the CI toward residents. And what I mean by that is in order to be in the CI, actually caring for patients in any way, uh, at all responsible for anybody, 
you needed to be a pediatric critical care fellow, a pediatric cardiology fellow, a senior fellow, an anesthesia fellow, etc. But residents wow. were not there. And that was pretty clear. If this made it very difficult to do any more than maybe a day or two on rounds, I think I was able to kind of muscle my way in there mm-hmm. just a couple of times just to see what it was like. But as I moved into my pediatric cardiology fellowship, really, that was the first time I had experienced the CI. And I think for that reason, it took me probably a year and a half to really feel awesome about doing cardiac ICU, or let's say at least a year. Mm. Do you feel like in residency, sort of early in residency, your main mentor connections were general cardiology? Like those were the people you had access to? And I think that's exactly right, Alice. For whatever reason, where I was training, the essentially all of the cardiologists who participated in resident education were either folks from the echo lab, cardiac MRI, general outpatient cardiology. They weren't people that were part of the cardiac ICU or cardiac cath. And those were actually the things that ultimately ended up really interesting me. But I didn't have any exposure to those folks early on because Mm. of that. That is challenging if you're not able to be in the environment and also not, you know, (laughs) interacting with them. And also... To your point, I I didn't even know what I didn't know <laughs> because I I didn't I hadn't met these folks and I had never been in the unit, so it wasn't like I desperately wanted to get into the cardiac ICU and I couldn't. I didn't even know anything that was going on in there. Absolutely. Did you find? Did you connect with people just by walking up to them after conference or or via cold email? Yeah. How did you identify your early mentors? So I was very lucky in that two of the mentors that I had, one was like a formal residency mentor happened to be a pediatric cardiologist. That was just straight up luck. Mm, nice. The other person who was David Brown, who is the program director for the Pediatric Cardiology Fellowship Program when I was there and still is, is a phenomenal educator and just a wonderful human being. And he participated a lot in things like morning report, noon conferences, and things of that nature, was probably the most recognizable pediatric cardiologist in the residency program. And he really got to know us pretty well. And as luck would have it, he was also the attending I probably was on service with most when I was doing my residency pediatric cardiology time. Oh, that's great. So you transitioned from Boston Children's for CARDS and for your residency to MGH for PICU, right? Yes, I did. And that was a really sort of interesting time in my life because we were expecting twins and we already had a a boy who was not even two. And I was finishing my pediatric cardiology fellowship thinking very strongly about doing cardiac ICU and therefore I wanted to do a critical care fellowship. So it was a very important decision and one that I uh, went into with a bit of trepidation to decide to do a full critical care fellowship. I wanted to stay in Boston, but I also wanted a new experience. I had had six amazing years at Boston Children's. I couldn't say enough positive things about the people that I met there and the people that taught me there, but I was ready for something different. And that's what took me to MGH. You must have been the busiest person probably in the Northeast with twins at home and and starting a PICU fellowship. It was very busy time, but between having an incredibly supportive spouse um, and a lovely au pair at home, uh, <laughs> mm. we were able to to sort ourselves out and uh, and we got through it. And I actually have very fond memories of that time. I'll have to admit, I don't remember everything because it was so insane. There so many sleepless nights, but um, it was it was a positive experience and it really 
change the way that I think of things now. So then looking back on your kind of own training experience and the other people that you've mentored, when do people start to look for their first attending jobs? That is a good question. And I think that's pretty variable. I do a bit of advising for quite a few of the fellows, the Cards Fellows and PICU Fellows. So I've learned a, a bit from them, probably more than I knew myself, because mm-hmm. it's not talked about as much as it probably should be, yeah. at least in my mind. Attendings aren't giving conferences and talks about how you find a job. That They're just not. Every once in a while, someone will like hint at it, or maybe you have a dedicated advisor who might tell you a thing or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a bit of a black box, and uh, I don't totally know why, but it seems like one of those things in medicine that we don't talk that much while we're training about where we're ultimately going, what the lifestyle is going to be like, how much we're going to get paid. Mm -hmm. And these end up being not only really important things, but in any industry other than medicine, it would be the first thing you'd find out. (laughs) Right. Yeah, seriously. I, um, we feel very passionately about this that it's not talked about about. And I, my personal experience and many people in my class who didn't go to fellowship and got jobs out of residency, it felt very much like this is uncharted territory. I've never been hired for an actual, because we've been training for such a long time. I mean, and that's without fellowship. I can't, you know, when you add fellowship to that, mm-hmm. it's even more years of training. And so, yes, we we couldn't agree more. Uh, to answer your question, as far mm-hmm. as when, when, when people look, I think the most to- common time is like right around now mm-hmm. uh, for next year. So autumn before mm-hmm. the, you know, the, you'd so. finish up like nine months or so before Mm-hmm. There are some, it's a little better than it was 10 years ago, mm-hmm. as far as, for example, like PCICS, the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society has a website where they actually post, have like, you know, openings that are posted mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. The PCCM does as well. So there are places that you can go, which are, you know, you can avoid things like pure word of mouth, right. knowing mm-hmm. somebody, <laughs> a headhunter, right. you know, things that seem sort of daunting and you're like, God, do I really have to do that after all this yeah. work? But you can actually see what places are offering positions. And typically, there will be a point person that's sort of leading a search committee of of sorts Mm -hmm. that would be directly reachable. So you usually don't have to reach out to someone who's in a more administrative role and just find out something. You can usually reach out to the person who is either the chief or the person that's been taxed with helping that position get filled. I imagine that pediatric CICU is a relatively small community of people ultimately in the country. Do you feel like networking does play? I mean, I'm assuming networking plays a huge part in it too, that maybe there are these job postings, but once you identify these point people, it's a lot of word of mouth and I trained with them. And how much of a role does that factor into it? Yeah, Shafela, that's that's a really, that's a good question too. So I think that plays a huge role in moving from one institution to another as a professional. So once you're working as an attendee, you go to these conferences you read the papers, and within probably three to five years, you know a lot of the people that are in the field. You know, figure that there are in cardiac critical care, and each of those programs might have anywhere from six to seven to up to even like 14 or more attendings. But if you do that math, you're looking at like three to 400 people tops that do what you do. Mm-hmm. And then you see them at PCICS, which is still a pretty intimate conference. Like mm-hmm. if, if you've been to AHA or something like that, or ACC, these conferences just go on for days. And oh, there's yeah. a huge private sector there. They're totally adult focused. They're not at all peds focused. 
if you go to the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society meeting, it's just what we do. So the only people that are there are people that are in this specific field. It's not adult-focused, of course. Mm -hmm. There are not a ton of vendors. And you get to see people that you have worked with before or might work with in the future, and they're very easy to find, and they're very recognizable. That's a little different when you're a fellow. Having gone to a couple of those conferences as a fellow, I didn't know any of those people. I believed that they were terrific. I watched them <laughs> speak. I would, was thinking this would be a great person to work with someday. But I wasn't going up to the podium at the end and saying, hey, I'd like to get a job in a, in a year or so at your mm -hmm. institution. Mm -hmm. That really was more word of mouth. Again, I, I mentioned that the, the, some of the website forums have a, have a little more information than they used to. But when I was looking, virtually everybody that I knew that was looking in this field, the path to finding out something was word of mouth or knowing somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. Mm -hmm. oh, that does, that makes a lot of sense that it's a lot more formal as a fellow for your first attending job versus, versus talking to people. I can appreciate the level of respect with like, just email the division chair or email the person on the, on the search committee. Totally, Alice. Yeah, I, and I think a lot of it is, it's still a job. Yeah. And whenever you're working professionally, you have to prove yourself in those first couple of years that you're a good person, a good person to work with, you care about the patients, you're good with the families, you have an academic interest, and you're going to be useful to that institution. It's mm -hmm. no different than any job in business. You still have to prove yourself in the field before people will know who you are and then be like, oh, that's a good guy to, to come work at our institution someday. Maybe we'll reach out to him. Speaking of sort of proving yourself in your first years of your attendingship, how did you think about the ideas of what you would bring to your first attending position when you were in the job search? And then how did it play out in the first couple of years? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And those certainly are pretty separate. You know, when I was mm -hmm. finishing up training, and I would imagine you two are, are beginning to feel the same way, although you're, you have a little bit more time, but before you know what it's going to be done, you're usually a bit tired and you're pretty tired of being a trainee, right? You've now finished med school, you've finished residency and you've finished fellowship. So at the very least, you've been doing some degree of training for 10 years, potentially more if you did a different fellowship and now you're doing critical care after that. You are excited once you find that job, which would be sort of the subject of a different talk, but we talked about a few of those things here. You're probably really nervous because you're thinking, oh my goodness, there's actually not going to be someone behind me saying that's a good idea or that's not a good idea. And yet you're probably full of a lot of good concepts and ideas that you want to take forward. You've sort of watched the fellowship unfold before you. You've watched a residency unfold before you. You've seen some things and some people that you really liked. You've seen some things that you really want to change. And because you're young and you're hopeful, you want to bring that passion to, mm -hmm. the, next, to the next level. But then to answer your second question about what changes after your first year, I go back to the idea that it is still a job. So you, you, know, you set your roots down, you bring yourself or your family or everybody there, you figure out your commute, you figure out how to park, <laughs> you go through mm -hmm. all of these things that have absolutely nothing to do with all of the passionate you know, thoughts that you had as a, as a fellow. And you have to do that first, right? That makes you a little less nervous because now you feel that you're a part of this new institution, or perhaps it's just the same role in your old institution. Maybe you stayed on staff there. And you're probably in a position where you're trying to academically anchor yourself somewhere. We'll be getting into that in a little bit trying to figure out, okay, 
I know my actual job part. I can get to work. I know my service time. I know my schedule. I'm learning how to take care of the patients in a new role. I know who to go for help, but I'm feeling better about my moment-to-moment patient management. Mm -hmm. However, I'm looking around at everybody, and it seems that everybody that's been here for more than a year or two or three more than me is like doing this other stuff when they're not on service. They've got this academic interest. I don't know where to get one of those, and I don't really know what it should be, and I don't know if I could ask somebody to help me. Right. It's... Like the, the dissonance between no longer being a trainee and formally involved in some kind of mentorship program and still very much needing help progressing your career. That's exactly right, Alice. There's also sort of this ladder from like assistant professor to associate professor to full professor that you sort of vaguely need to climb once you get into academic medicine, right? Yes. Does anybody, I'm so curious, ever sit you down and talk you through what tenure and tenure track looks like? There's PowerPoint, thank you. Yeah. An amazing question, Shafali. And all that happened in, in my case was this year, my division chief said, I think you should be promoted. I said, that sounds great. So it is, uh, you have to sort of figure it out. I can certainly go through the process a little bit, although I'd probably be a lot more uh, able to inform on the other end of it. But what I can say is what is where you are evaluated as whether it's an instructor level, assistant professor, associate professor, what you're evaluated on before you move to that next level are basically three things. The first is what we expect, clinical acumen. Are you good at your job? Can you take care of patients? Can you, can you work with families? Are the results good due to you being there? Are the outcomes good? That sort of thing as part of that. And that, that's going to be a bigger deal if you're a surgeon that's going to be heavily data-driven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are an intensive care doctor, that's going to be more driven by recommendations and testimonials from the people that work with you mm-hmm. and uh, your goals and objectives and stuff like that every year, whether you're meeting them or not. The second is more, are you laying down a foundation as far as participating in education of the next generation, so to speak, and your teaching and your teaching acumen. Do you work with fellows? Do you work with residents? What's the experience? What did they say about you? Are you on SOCs? Are you helping people that are training present abstracts? What kind of abstracts? Have you been on papers with them? Things of that nature. Your global teaching and your ability to really kind of foster the education of the next group and that sort of thing. The last thing is just straight up academic acumen and what you actually publish and where you present your stuff. This is the hardest thing, at least for me. Some people who come into this field might have a lot more experience with um, presenting everywhere and constantly being academic, and Mm -hmm. they've been churning out papers since residency, and there absolutely are people like that, and they amaze me, but that was definitely not me. I was always getting through my training, reading a lot, and looking to the next thing. I was a resident. I wanted to be the best pediatrician that I could be. I was a cardiology fellow. I wanted to be the best pediatric cardiologist I could be and also figure out what kind of one I wanted to be. And then when I did critical care, I had just two years to learn critical care medicine, which I honestly still think I'm learning every day. Mm -hmm. And I was reading and reading and reading. I was not writing abstracts and presenting at meetings. That was not me. And suddenly, after about a year or two on staff, and this would be the case for almost any position if you're at a big hospital that's academically focused, 
someone somewhere, probably your chief, is going to say, so what other things are you doing right now? And it's those what other things you're doing right now that when you're up for promotion are going to be evaluated. That's, that's great to hear. It's very, very valuable. It's very yeah. valuable. I've never yeah, heard same. anybody bring it down tells like that. It really no. has seemed so nebulous up until this point. Yeah. And it's also refreshing to hear, I think, certainly there are rock stars and even residency who are publishing. I completely have seen that myself, but it's refreshing to hear that you don't necessarily have to, it's okay to really, you know, entrench yourself into what you're doing, make your, yeah, to just train. And then eventually when you get to that next step, there's room to grow your academic interest. That's, that's reassuring to hear because it does feel sometimes like, Oh wow, residency just <laughs> three years. just Blue to, right back. <laughs> yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's hard. I think you're right on, Shefali, and and I think this is a little bit of a, um, it's an example and it's a it's a testament how how training has changed as well, and trainees have changed. When I was a resident, I was you know I was up in Boston. It was a good program. I was so honored to be up there. I looked around every day and I couldn't believe the brilliance that I was that was surrounding me. And I, there were times I couldn't believe that I was a part of it. But yeah. even then, this is 2007 to 2010 there was nobody really doing a lot of academic work. Residency was a grind. You knew it was going to be a grind. Mm -hmm. When you got together, you know, for lunch or, or, you know, for a beer with somebody who was a co-resident, you never, that never came up. You talked about, oh my goodness, <laughs> we have to do adolescent medicine yeah. again for a month. This is going to be terrible. <laughs> you know, it was that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. It, it wasn't, you know, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a, a, a pediatric endocrinologist and I'm, um, you know, I'm just, <laughs> right. you know, publishing my, my second paper in residency, it, there really weren't a lot, or if, if that was happening, nobody was talking about it. And now mm -hmm. like when I work with residents and I was actually just on the phone with a very gifted resident last night, who's trying to figure out sort of her next career moves. I was just mm -hmm. amazed by the amount of work that she has done from mm -hmm. an academic standpoint as a second year resident, and yet is a super approachable, delightful person who's great clinically and I've, you know, worked with her and she's rotated in the unit with me. It, it, it amazes me. So I, I do think that there, there is a bit of a change and, mm -hmm. and that might be difficult when you're a resident, if you're not, or a fellow, if you're mm -hmm. not that person, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think it's okay. You know, you should be clinically awesome first. That's why we became doctors. You do need to do something academically good at some point to move forward. And I would argue it actually can be really fun once you actually get into it. But I think it's okay to look at yourself clinically first. That's why you didn't get a PhD. Yeah, no, that, absolutely. Yeah, very true. And then also, the, yeah, the idea that we're not talking about these things socially as trainees, like, because sometimes you will realize you'll be like, wait, you wrote a textbook chapter? And then you, yeah. you know, it's great to like have friends to ask about that process with, you yes, know? It is. So to come back to how did you sort of end up doing doing med ed and then how did you progress to make it academic? So I was always, you know, I was interested in education in general. And I'll just back up a little bit in that, you know, I did a uh, something called Jesuit Volunteer Corps, which is a, uh, it's sort of like a Teach for America. And I had done that mm -hmm. after college. Oh, neat. So I always had an interest in, in teaching and education. But then... I ended up working as a software engineer for four years, believe it or not. And that was because this is the late nineties, awesome. which was a, which is a great time. Um, I'm sure. It totally, it yeah. totally. I was that guy. Um, if yeah. you ever watched the movie office space, you know, do think of me. Um, so, so I, I did that mostly because that was, 
that was a really good job to have out of college. I had done the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. I would I didn't have two nickels to rub together, and I had a lot of student loans, and it was a good-paying job, and I wasn't really ready for any kind of grad school. And by the mm-hmm. way, I was not at all interested in medicine. I hadn't done my pre-meds or anything like that. So I oh, did wow. uh, about three and a half, four years as a software engineer, and I just bring this up in that the stuff that I liked most about that was when I got to write programs and software and then kind of teach the gotcha. the people as I went mm-hmm. as I went on that were working for me how to develop stuff. And I was like, I'm in the wrong field. I'm not a programmer. I, I'm an educator and I just have to figure out how to, how to sort this out. I ended up looking at medicine because I thought that was kind of the best way to channel that educational interest. I, I had never sort of thought of myself as someone in a, uh, you know, PhD kind of situation. And, and I still don't, but I wasn't really interested in like being a high school teacher. I just kind of thought I couldn't pull that off. I look at my, I look at my, my kids' teachers and I'm still amazed that they do it every day. So lo and behold, ended up, you know, going into medicine and sort of to answer your question with the med ed, most of the mentors that I had and and would seek out were people who had an interest in, in education, which made sense, right? The people that are going to work most with the med students or with the residents or with the interns or with the fellows are going to be the people that are probably the most interested in med ed. Mm -hmm. So in some ways it's easy to find mentors in that. That part I think is easy. What was tricky for me is when I finished my second fellowship, I would say my closest advisor in my first and second fellowship in, in cardiology and critical care fellowships was the program director, just as it turned out, probably because Mm -hmm. we shared some interest in education and also because in both cases, David Brown and Phoebe Yeager are just the most approachable, fantastic people that have made me the person I am in a lot of ways, and I owe them an, a, a great deal. When I finished that, I just think subconsciously, I thought, well, I think probably what I'll do is I'll you know, get a job and then move toward being a program director mm-hmm. somewhere, because that mm-hmm. seems to be the most likely thing to do. When I showed up at Children's National, I immediately discovered something. And that was that not only were both of the program directors, that is the program director for pediatric cardiology fellowship, as well as for the critical care fellowship, younger than I was, they were also sensational. And I thought to myself, I don't think I'm going to be the program director in the, at this place. I think I'm going to have to find something else that I'm going to need to do. I think it's so interesting. First of all, thank you for telling us about, I mean, your career before you came to medicine. I hear so much about, I think that many people's path into med ed is knowing they want to do medicine first, going through and being like, oh, I like to educate, I think, and I like to be around trainees. And I just think it's interesting that you came to medicine with the lens of, I want to be an educator. That's that's fascinating. But um, that's good to know. So basically, I mean, you're absolutely right. I feel like the people that we are surrounded by because we're trainees are people who want to, they self-select into wanting to work with us. And I agree. There have been so many great mentors who are interested in med ed that we've, I think, both been exposed to in residency. So you move from this from this goal, which honestly, when I think about med ed career sort of vaguely as someone who's like, couldn't be earlier in my, you know, even fellowship training, I feel like that trope of, oh, I guess like this is the, this is the, this is the big job and maybe there's sort of a ladder, maybe I do feel like that's common. And, and you were able to pivot from that to being the director of simulation. And then Shafali, having done one of the ECMO sims, you're literally, you're compressing an open chest that the cardiac surgeon is, is cannulating. Um, and so it's not a light, (laughs) it's not a light experience. Um, No, no, no. (laughs) How did you fall into that? That was an interesting journey. And, you know, I think, Really, you know, spending those first couple of years 
again, focusing on trying to be clinically excellent, I think was, was a good thing. And even though I still, for those first couple of years, wasn't sure, like academically what I was going to do. And, and mind you, it wasn't like I felt I would walk into the place and be working with fellows and direct the, you know, the fellowship yeah. programs. But it was more that I realized that a lot went into that. And maybe I wasn't ready for that. Maybe I needed to sort of anchor myself in something that was med ed related first. And then maybe if something like that occurred 10 years down the road, that would be that would be a good thing. So it actually, I think, was a benefit in meeting the program directors and seeing how good they were at what they did, but also how they worked really hard to get where they were. And that helped me kind of backtrack a little bit. And instead of wanting a role and a title, Mm -hmm. which I think we all kind of want, right? Because it anchors us, especially as a new job. You go there, you're like, I'm going to be the this of the this, Mm -hmm. right? You're like, okay, that's going to be my thing. Instead of that, I felt I need to become clinically excellent and then figure out what my academic sort of strength should be. At least that's what happened to me. And I, I think I'm very lucky with that. What happened essentially was, and this I think is really, really common, is you'll spend your first couple of years, or perhaps even more, continuing to improve yourself clinically, working in the field, working with people that are excellent, working with families, and then somebody that does something that's maybe a little bit like what you do leaves. This is really, really common. I had no idea how common this was, but when I was on staff, I joined in 2015, By the fall of 2016, half of our staff had left and turned over. And right now, in 2021, there are only four of us on staff out of what effectively, if you counted everybody that's worked as a CI attending at Children's National for the last six years, you'd get about 15. So it's only about 25% of the people were there then and are still here now. And I bring that up in that you get an appreciation for how fluid your job will be. You know, when you work as a trainee, you're, you know you're, you know, three years I'm out, right? But as an attending, there's a lot of that as well. And what happened to me, at least, is Lillian Sue, who is a CI attending at Stanford, was a CI attending at Children's National, and she was doing some sims, and I noticed that she was doing them. I had done a little bit of simulation mm-hmm. when I was at MGH and a very little bit when I was at Children's Boston. And she came up to me and was like, you know, I have been doing a lot of sims. I'm kind of like the sim person here, and I'm taking a job in California. Do you want to do this? Mm-hmm. And truly, that is how this started. You know, it wasn't some like epiphany in the middle of the night. And I said, I am going to direct simulation everywhere. You know, like it it just wasn't that. And I don't think for a lot of people it is. I think for a lot of people, there is a little bit of luck. And the key is just keeping your eyes open, keeping your ears open and just trying to be patient with yourself. And remember that you're working in the context of a field. Wow. Also, because... The way that, that I see it when I think about it is, right, like I interviewed for Picky Fellowship with someone whose research interest was simulation. And I imagine that that's, you know, she builds a simulation profile and then she comes and she gets a simulation job. And the fact that it's, yeah. like, you just, there's natural shuffle and turnover and nothing is set. Right, right. And, and that really just sort of, you know, spring, springboarded me to, mm-hmm. to doing more and more sims. And I think one thing that would be fun to address is you guys have talked a bit about mentors and, and finding mentors. And we're always talking about mentors when it comes to, you know, I'm a resident, I want a mentor to tell me how to, or help me, you know, find a job 
something that's going to be fulfilling, something that can be academically interesting and all the rest. Or I'm a fellow and I need someone to sort of help me through the process of getting through fellowship and doing something academic in fellowship and then finding a job, that sort of thing. But nobody really mm-hmm. talks a lot about mentorship as a junior attending. And every single one of us is going to be there. It's almost this understanding that you'll walk into your job. Yeah, there'll be a, a learning curve and everything. But a couple years in, you're just you're not going to need anybody to do that. And that's hard. I think that's really hard. And I, I think it's important to provide mentorship to junior attendings. And I'm trying to be sensitive to that as I've now been doing this for six years. And we've had quite a few people get hired since me. And this isn't say anything bad about the people that I work with right now, but it wasn't like there was a a formal setup for this is how to be a junior attending. And this Mm -hmm. is how to develop an academic interest. Instead of what happened was a very random thing, which is Lillian moving on and and sort of passing on this simulation material Mm -hmm. to me. And then me just sort of doing that over and over again. The basis of the stuff that I do with simulation, I would say all of it, just about 100% is interprofessional. So not just multidisciplinary, but actually interprofessional. That is, there are physicians, there are nurses, there are ECMO specialists, there are respiratory therapists, there are surgeons. And we can certainly talk about this a little bit more later. But because of all that, the people that ended up being my mentors were the nurse educators in the unit who had been doing simulation for years Mm -hmm before I ever even thought of it as an interest for me. And so when it comes to finding mentors, wherever you are in your career, I think one thing I could say from my own experience is it doesn't have to be another physician who is exactly like you, but they've just been doing it for 20 years. It might be someone that's standing right next to you that isn't even a doctor. What specific questions do you feel like you ended up asking the nurse educator teams? So I think the first things I asked you know, and we had two nurse educators when I started and we've built up the education in the unit quite a bit. So now we have four. Our nurse educators are just sensational. They get pulled into staffing a lot, but every day we do have four people on staff that are sort of participating Uh in moment to moment, just in time nurse education. Mm -hmm. And then also like big picture sort of nurse education programs. And I kind of run with those folks. But I think the first questions I ask them is how do you get people to show up at stuff? Yeah. You know, how, how do you build this and feel that it's going to be useful And then later on, how do you figure out if your work actually made a difference? Because if you're in, if you have that generative side where you want to train the next class of trainees, it's hard to sort of force that, right? How specifically do you, do you push that project forward when it's, when people are busy and they're thinking about other things? I completely agree. And, and let's be honest, you know, when you're, and I always say this to to the fellows, which is not meant to be a dig at all, because I remember being the same way. The path of least resistance is not to yeah. show up at a lecture, <laughs> right? The path of least resistance is to say, there's too much going on. I'm not going to go. And so if you are interested in whatever medical education thing you're trying to do, whether it's lectures or whiteboard sessions, or you're having other academically minded people show up. And so you're, you're arranging for speakers yeah. uh, to come and, and spend their time. And that takes a while too. Or in my case, it's simulation. You're actually spending days and weeks and sometimes months writing the simulations, getting a sim team to be part of them, making sure they know what the objectives are, making sure that the technicians can run the mannequin, finding a space to have the simulations, and then having people sign up at the end of the day, the path of least resistance is for no one to actually show up. Mm -hmm. And you have to accept that and not be insulted by it and just be like, you know what? I was that way too. Mm. Yeah. The balance between, I care so much clinically about what's happening to my patients right now and fulfilling your own education is 
It's like a deal. That's exactly it, Alice. That that's really well said. And and it's it's hard to invest in your own education if you are exhausted, right? If you are you know working constantly and constantly on surface, and then people are you know sort of breathing down your neck about you know are you going to do something academic during your residency or your fellowship, and you you feel the need to do this. You're not going to be that stoked about like attending a lecture just because somebody said it's pretty yeah. good. So you need to make your sessions excellent. You need to make them awesome, and you need to really hope that that translates into people wanting to come. And that really, to answer a question you had a minute ago, is what happens. And the reason it happened is because our nurse educators did such a good job of coaching me into being really good. And I helped them from the sort of uh, academic standpoint as far as, hey, guys, we can make this. We can present this stuff at conferences. We can write this stuff up. This is really great. We played off each other's strengths really well. Mm -hmm. Basically, they would bring the people to me and I would bring the stuff to conferences. And here, five years later, that's still what we're doing. And I feel that it was so useful because they had the ability to get people to show up at these things. Now, fellows show up at my stuff, you know, consistently. I don't have to send too many reminders. <laughs> Still some. But the reason it got off the ground was really because our nurses were able to get other nurses there. And that really is where things started. Mm. For, just to clarify, what is the structure? When do your sessions happen? And when do the fellows, like, is it, because I, I thought it was a mandatory, and if, like, I thought it was a part of your training, Alice, that you had to attend, but I don't know if it is. I'm so glad you found that you're bringing it up because it is absolutely not mandatory. And you'll find that if you speak with program directors for, for residency and fellowship mm -hmm. programs, there are, there's a lot of mandatory stuff, sure, yeah. such as um, the amount of procedures that you did, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the rotations that you did, sort of the feedback that mm -hmm. you received, all those things. There's plenty of that. But when it comes mm -hmm. to additional educational experiences, no one is yeah. going to make sure that you went to a certain lecture. And definitely no one is going to insist that you go to an educational oh, uh, session. Uh -huh. And... For that reason, everything is basically voluntary, and that makes it difficult. And it kind of, if you think about it, it kind of needs to be that way, right? If every attending just stood up and said, you know what, the stuff that I do is important. The fellows should mm -hmm. absolutely have to spend an hour a month with me because they yeah. need to learn this stuff. Then it would be ridiculous. There would be no time for fellows to ever not be in the hospital. They would be mm -hmm. inundated with academic work in addition yeah. to their clinical responsibilities. Frankly, it just wouldn't be fair. So I firmly believe that my sessions should be voluntary. And for that reason, I do them in situ. I do them for people that are already there that day. So those sessions that I do every week are based on, uh, very closely based on cardiac arrest that we've had in the unit. We essentially look at the event that's happened in the last 12 months and we essentially do it again. We do a, what's, what's called a rapid cycle debrief. And in that case, we, we create all the data that went into the, the background of the, of the actual event. And then we play out the event itself and see what people do. And sometimes it's exactly what happened in the uh, real thing. It usually is. Wow. But now you're in a consequence-free environment where you can debrief and then maybe go through it again in five minutes uh -huh. or at the very least talk about the physiology and why you think it happened. So that's, the biggest part of what I do with nurses and physicians, and it's mm -hmm. voluntary in that I don't say you have to be there, but because people are already at work, it's pretty easy to say, hey, can you cover that person's patient? 
I just need this nurse to come over here for 12 to 15 minutes. These are very brief mm-hmm. sessions. Gotcha. Or if they're fellows, you know what it's right. like in, in an ICU. The fellows are yeah. practically tripping over each other. There's right. tons <laughs> of people during the day. Yeah. There's no one at yeah. night, of course, when we need them. But there's tons of people during the day. You can always be like, hey, John, can you cover Joe's patients for like, you know, 25 minutes? I don't think much is going on with this kiddo. This kiddo extubated an hour ago. Just keep an eye on him and I'll be back at 11. And that's very, very easy. The sessions that involve mechanical support training do involve people coming in specifically for these sessions. And for those, I do them during what's called nursing skills days, when our nurses actually have to be a part of a training program for eight hours a day, and they Mm -hmm. have to do that four to eight days a year. And so I create the, the, I have the sessions on days I know they have to be there. And then I ask fellows to sign up and come to those sessions. And I have not had a no show in a long time. So it's pretty (laughs) intense. I highly recommend. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, no, but very educational. But it is, it's part of the idea of, of doing um, interprofessional simulation is you realize how other people train. And I think if I had to summarize, like, what what is always, whenever I look at events, um, and we have, like, you know, video review, right, we can see what happened. Very frequently, at the heart of the matter, and the, the issue at hand is that all of us train differently, but we are expected to have the exact same approach together when it comes to dealing with an emergency. So nurses are trained by nurses. And they're trained in a manner which prioritizes the key nursing elements. That can be anything from patient safety to charting appropriately to total patient care toward bringing families to rounds toward making sure you know what you're talking about when it comes to talking to families and making sure that you have the clinical understanding of what's going on with your patient and who to call for help. Those would be some examples as far as what is prioritized in nursing education. Mm -hmm. There are other things, but those would be some. Physician training is different. It's highly scientific, right? We all start off with, you know, pathophys and farm, Mm -hmm. right? We're Mm -hmm. still needing to know biochem in early early med school, right? And that stuff stays with us. We're very factually driven. We like to be right. We like to have the right answer. And if not have it, we certainly like to, at the very least, know it. And we then go into a situation when there's an emergency with a a different framework, with a different approach to the patient because we've been trained differently. And what I always think about is if we are expected to treat patients together, then we have to actually train while treating patients together, if that makes sense. I'm going to give an analogy, but it's not going to be very good. If you were to say we need to make the best toy ever, the best toy fire truck for this holiday season, okay? You probably wouldn't have the developers hang out in a room together for the next couple of, maybe the next six to eight weeks working on ideas. Mm -hmm. And the actual people that are going to build the models also hang out, maybe work on building models and last year's models Mm -hmm. and making sure that they got like the, the wheels and the glue and all that stuff. And then like three days before the product needs to be out, sit them in a room together and say, build the best thing, right? You would train them together the entire time. They would always be thinking of that best ultimate product such that maybe in a couple of months they can deliver it. This reminds me of um, my 
when I when we recertified for PALS, I I was with a couple of our my co-residents and we were with CICU nurses, which was I because we don't have really a lot of exposure outside of voluntary exposure to the CICU as residents. It was the first time I was interacting with those nurses. It was a very valuable experience to do PALS with them because a lot of our cases were ultimately things that I think you see more in CICU than you would. <laughs> uh, but kind of yeah, intentionally it was it was interesting. So Chevalier, what what specifically? was so interesting i'm curious was so interesting about being being involved again this is this is the idea of interprofessional education right can be yeah. as simple as a pals course what what was so notable about that so we've done so many sims with i mean i i and not to i don't want this to sound in any way like diminishing of the bedside nurses and the general pediatric unit because that's not you know obviously they're the people who we work with closely throughout residency but the, they're the people that we do most of our sims with as residents so we're it's more like are you communicating your plan to the nurses so they can effectively carry it out? Are they do they feel comfortable communicating their you know their impression of the patient when the patient is crashing and they need you to come to bedside? That's the type of stuff that we do with our uh, when we're on service on the Genpeds unit. In I, and I don't remember the exact cases at this point, but I remember very clearly the CICU nurses are obviously extremely advanced in terms of the number of years they've been practicing as nurses and then the types of things they're doing. Because I know in the CI, they primarily present the patient, right? They're also... That's exactly right. Right, which is a completely new... I mean, that's not what it is on our general pediatrics unit. So I think their approach to these cases, even when the cases were as simple as like hypovolemic shock, not at all related to the CICU necessarily, something we can see in the ED or on the unit. They were, they had their own approach to, I guess, the pathophysics of what might be going on. The, the solutions they were proposing were, frankly, things that I did not think about at all and were very helpful. It, they embody a different role, I think, in the CI. And so mm-hmm. they were just, it was a, just a different kind of lens. I don't know. It's not the best answer, but. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really, I appreciate that yeah. feedback. And I think one of the most exciting things about the cardiac ICU, and, and, and this is not totally unique to the CI, but it is something we see, is that I truly believe the, the, artificial division line between doctor and nurse is mm-hmm. totally blurred. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that's the best thing. Yeah. You know, when I'm working as the attending, especially at night, the amount of people, especially the charge nurses who have more experience than mm-hmm. I do, it's high. Mm-hmm. And the idea that if there is an urgency or an emergency, that you are going to not only be able to run this, which you do need to do, you always need to do that as the physician in the room. Mm-hmm but that you're going to know every answer, address every situation, see everything that isn't right, and ultimately bring this this terrible situation to something good. It's not practical. It's it's not really doable. And I think, I, Alice, I had mentioned this when I um, was speaking to the, uh, to the critical care fellows a few, you know, weeks ago is what excites me the most when I look at a sim and I see how it went. Mm-hmm is when the person that is the most junior person in the simulation, and this would of course be the same for a real situation, is the one that brings up something. Not only do they think it, not only do they say it, not only does the code leader hear it, but he or she acts on it. That is medicine at its Mm -hmm. best because that's teamwork. And that, if you had a bunch of doctors, I don't know that's going to happen. If you have just nurses, that is when the idea of interprofessional simulation can create great interprofessional teams, capitalize on strengths, and actually foster care delivery. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a fantastic interview. I can't emphasize enough how much we appreciate you spending the time to really walk us through these things. Any final any final tips that you would have for, for pediatric residents before you go? 
So I think I'd go back again to saying, be clinically great first. And also value and cherish your time outside of the hospital. Like we always say that, but like, do we really do it? Like sometimes the people saying that, they're always in the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, I love that you say that, but I, I feel bad because I'm going to leave and you're still here. <laughs> um, so I truly believe that what allows us as as any medical care provider, not just as physicians, but obviously we're speaking as physicians in this in this forum, what allows us to be great physicians is our time spent out of the hospital and the fulfillment that we get from our lives and other places. The idea of saying, I'm going to be a happy person because I'm going to have this amazing job and then I'm going to translate that. Okay. I don't think that's the way it works, right? right. The happiness and the the pride that you have outside of the hospital with your friends, with your family, with your significant others is what then you can bring to your job. Mm -hmm. And so I think one thing I would say to residents is, you know, don't ever feel or any trainee don't ever feel bad about leaving early. If you can mm -hmm. about taking time for yourself, about truly taking that vacation about maybe being a little late on getting your abstract in <laughs> right be an excellent team member when you're on service. Don't, you know, those are times you probably can't like prioritize family, mm -hmm. right? When right. you are the person caring for patients, yeah. you're a doctor, you got, you got to do that stuff. Mm -hmm. Of course, if there's an emergency, you tell somebody you get out of there and somebody will cover you, but you need to be a hundred percent when you're clinical because mm -hmm. your families and their children depend on you to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the biggest task we have. And that's why we went into this, right? We love that responsibility. But when it comes right. down to the the lecture or the simulation, right, or the voluntary session or the whatever that we have to do, and there's something important going on outside the hospital, do the thing that's outside the hospital. Even if that thing is a simulation with me, I won't get <laughs> mad. I promise. Well, Dr. Gersick, thank you again. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wow, Bali, that was a really outstanding conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I came out of it actually feeling kind of reassured about the fact that you don't necessarily need to, you know, have this checklist that you're you're ticking off things as you're progressing through residency in order to get to your, you know, next step in your career, that it can sort of be a fluid, mm -hmm. you know, journey. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that, you know, people are going to leave isn't it, when you're a new attending and maybe that leaves a way to provide value to the department, but things like that. In my mind, it's always a more linear path, I think, than it actually is. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think definitely we came out of it knowing that it's not necessarily as linear, and hopefully our our listeners will find that uh, <laughs> helpful right? as well. Right? Uh, yeah. yeah. I feel like the other thing too is just keeping in mind that mentors can come from pretty much any walk of your career, and that it's mm -hmm. not just the attending that you were on service with that one time. It can be charge nurses you've worked with, educators from other disciplines. Like it's just important to to know that mentorship comes from many places. Yes. So please, if you're still listening to our podcast, please reach out to us at pedsadmin at gmail.com with questions, comments, ideas. We'd really love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We're still on Instagram. We still don't know how to tweet. So you know where to find us. Yeah. You know where to find us. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>